0: Hi, I'm Nigella Nakuna, and this is the Kennedy School Review Podcast. We recorded this episode in the last weeks of 2020, a year that revealed the best and the worst sides of our country. As we grappled with these two dualities, our team wanted to reflect on how we begin to communicate with each other, not just as politicians, but also as humans. How do we advocate for accountability? And how and when do we as leaders, and especially we as citizens, demand for that accountability? It's almost chilling to hear the team speak about real issues that we could never have foreseen, that our leaders are now forced to grapple with. Much has happened since the time this was recorded, the insurrection on our capital, the impeachment of President Trump for a second time, all in the midst of this global pandemic. Other conversations have since sparked at the Kennedy School around free speech amidst HKS's disaffiliation with U.S. Representative Elise Stefanik. At times, this conversation got awkward, and that's why you'll hear some extended pauses or even some interruptions. We wanted it to be real. It's why this episode is longer than our usual ones. Everyone here was committed to having a real conversation, and that's what this was all about, about realizing the ever-increasing importance of dialogue about probably the most important issues of our time. So, let's dig in.
1: Welcome to the Kennedy School Review podcast. This is the first podcast that we are recording for the 2020-21 academic school year. And uh, I'm Andrea, I'll be moderating. I was a part of the podcast team since last year. And I also have with me uh, Lauren, who is a second year MPP and is the co-chair of the Republican caucus. I also have Joseph, who is a first-year MPP, and he just joined the podcast for the Kennedy School Review, and we have Khadija, who's a first-year MPA student from France, who will be offering an international perspective. Today, we are discussing the wider issue of how to bridge the gap between Republicans and Democrats. The United States recently had a presidential election in November, so it is a proper context to discuss this topic. And recently, members in the Harvard community were preparing an open letter that refers to whether former Trump administration officials could be given jobs at the school after the administration ends. And this letter has generated plenty of debate to see whether this is the appropriate way to approach things or it's not the appropriate way to approach things. So using this letter as the context for our conversation, we want to start and listen to the different perspectives of students at the Kennedy School. Our idea with this conversation is to provide a space for people from different parties to share their views and to sort of learn what they're thinking about rather than really go into the nitty gritty of the debate. We really like want to air the different perspectives that are going around the school. And Khadija and I are international students, but we, uh, and mostly Khadija, will talk about how this is viewed from an outside perspective. Having said that, we wanted to frame the conversation in a way that as international students, we want to respect that the people that have more uh, investment in these issues are U.S. students, but we also wanted to come in at certain points and and see it from our perspective as internationals. So having said that, uh, welcome, everyone, and thank you so much for being here today with us.
2: Thank you. I'm so excited.
1: Really looking forward to the conversation. Thank you so much. Thank you. Um, I guess we can start with with Lauren since you're um, a guest today, you know, you can refer to this letter um, that I mentioned about the Trump administration or other issues in in general, but I think the the letter is a good starting point.
3: Sure. yeah, L- let's talk about the letter. I don't support the letter uh, in its previous forms, nor do I support it in its current form. I know that the student government voted to write a new letter. I have not seen that letter, so I can only speak to the ones that have been passed around previously, as well as previous conversations. But look, from my perspective, we're at an institution designed to educate people, um, and we're at one of the most privileged institutions in the world. And so I think it's crucial at those types of institutions to hear from different types of people, particularly people that happen to represent Nearly half of the country that we live in and uh, have been in power for the last four years, have been making policy decisions for the last four years. And if we can't hear them speak about those policy decisions at a policy school designed to have those types of conversations and that type of debate, where can we have those conversations? And how do we expect sort of the quote, future leaders that we're training here at the Kennedy School the Future Policy Leaders uh, to be able to have those types of conversations uh, and to be effective if we're unable to allow them to foster here? To be clear, and I think we should be honest about how this letter started, it started with an ask to ban Trump officials. I understand that the letter as it currently stands has more nuance than that, But I think it's important to realize that it's rooted in an ask to not have anyone from this administration to come to campus to speak or to teach in any form, which, you know, even in its current form, which is sort of asking for extra constraints and policies to be placed on Trump officials who might come to speak or to teach, we're still asking for extra constraints and processes to be applied to one political party, um, a party that many of the students who support this letter happen to not belong to. Uh, which to me sets a very problematic precedent and creates this unequal restriction that is still attempting to do what it initially started at, ban or limit the speech uh, from Trump officials. In the conversation that we have here today, it'll become clear that I'm not a Trump supporter. I don't agree with a lot of what Trump and his administration have done, but I wholly advocate for them to be able to come to campus and for us to have a really robust and strong conversation about what exactly like what policies and what exactly has happened under their leadership
1: in the last four years. Thank you. Um, how about you, Joe? What are your views?
2: So I, I agree with Lauren that it's, it's a bit complicated because it is an evolving uh, letter. I'm not sure exactly where it stands right now, but last I saw the word ban is not used. The word prohibit is not used. Um, the letter is calling for accountability. Uh, and I think after four years of undermining democratic norms in the last 46 days of working, efforting to subvert uh, the election results, then I think accountability is, is necessary. We are, as a university, an institution, especially specifically the Harvard Kennedy School as, a, as, a, as an institution, you can, you can look at the values of the university on the website. Uh, one of them is promoting security and freedom. One of them is strengthening democracy. And over the last 50 days, let alone the last four years, uh, there is nothing that indicates to me that members of the trump administration and their allies are necessarily committed to strengthening democracy and, and there is uh, this is not about the republican party there are uh members of the republican party there are republican officials public servants who i think have distanced themselves from this administration uh, and i would love to hear their opinions on campus. This, this transcends politics and ideology. This is, this is specifically uh, about an administration, a president, and his allies uh, who have challenged the fundamental norms uh, of our democracy. I believe they have made our democracy weaker. And without accountability, I don't think it's right to have them educating the next generation of, of leaders uh, of our country.
1: Something interesting that you both refer to is this idea of accountability. I guess, as as a student at the Kennedy School, I guess my my question is, how are you interpreting accountability? Because the last time I I read the letter, and like you said, it's an evolving letter, so the, the, the one I read might not be where it's at, but... It was speaking about the people that would come to Harvard in any capacity would be asked about, you know, actions that they did in the last four years. So I guess that's how I understood accountability, but it's still not clear to me if the outright ban is out of the question, which it seems to be that you both agree on that. And it, and if accountability is it's now at the center of the debate, how that accountability would be sort of viewed from, from the different perspectives?
3: Look, I think accountability is the opportunity to have debate and to have conversation, and we can only do that if people are able to come to campus. I have heard accountability defined differently. I've heard accountability defined as not given the opportunity to come or not given the platform to have those types of conversations. I think that's misguided and I think that's a disservice. I think accountability is sort of the same as free and open debate, the ability to have those discussions, the sort of mandate to answer student questions, to answer them publicly and on the record, and and to have to take a position and a stance after leaving the Trump administration on the policies that occurred. And I, I think we can only have that accountability if we allow those voices to have a place on our campus, if we allow them to come and we take time to listen to them and then engage in that debate and ask those questions afterwards. I don't think this letter calls for accountability. I think it calls for additional constraints on certain types of political speech. I think accountability being broadly applied, I think, I think that definition sort of is, is misused in this sense. It really is a call for additional constraints on certain types of political speech, not necessarily a call for accountability.
2: Uh, I disagree with. I want to start by by just disagreeing with with one particular uh, term that I think keeps keeps getting thrown around, which is policies. Uh, this is not about policy distinctions. There are Republicans. Let's let's say I don't know John Kasich, Jeff Flake, for example. We could we could have we could host an entire podcast. It would be pretty boring, but where I sit here and just lay out all my disagreements with Jeff Flake and John Kasich. This is not about policy disagreements. It's not about disagreements on policy preferences. This is about uh, members of an administration, a president who over the last 50 days have done everything in their power up to to uh, you had you had the president of the United States last night tweet that he was upset with the Supreme Court. Why? Because they refused to take up a court case that was being pushed forward by Republicans in Texas uh, to overturn the will of voters, in four states that voted for Joe Biden. It took 45 days or so, 40, 42, 45 days, for the Republican Senate Majority Leader to acknowledge that Donald Trump had lost the election, and he is one of few Republican officials around the country that have yet to do so. You had, I think, a 126 Republican members of Congress who signed on to a brief supporting this Supreme Court case to overturn the election results in four states. So there is nothing about that that relates to policy. This is about a, a concerted effort going on right now to overturn the will of voters in the United States of America who supported a candidate that is not Donald Trump. And instead of acknowledging that, the Republican Party, and, and not, not all of them, again, the, the key officials in the Republican Party, namely Trump administration allies, have spent the last 45 days focused entirely And and let's put this in context. There is a pandemic that is raging. There is an economic crisis that is unfolding. And and their focus, instead of on that, is on undermining election results. So this, again, transcends policy preferences, transcends politics. This is an effort to undermine this election, to subvert democracy. And I don't think you can bring people to campus, to, to a university that prides itself on, on democratic norms, on the values, on, on, on upholding and promoting the values of, of democracy, let alone a school like the Kennedy School that, that is focused on strengthening democracy without asking those questions of, I think there are people that are being caught up in this moment. Uh, I, I think there are Republicans that might not acknowledge the, the, the consequences of their actions right now. And I think maybe in a year, <laughs> You'll look back and say oh maybe this wasn't the best idea for for me to be engaged in, in this kind of work and this effort and again i don't think anyone's calling for a ban i think what we're calling for is for people to acknowledge or, or for when they are brought to campus i would love to see some context provided that that certain members of the administration certain public officials were engaged in this behavior and that this behavior is unacceptable for the fact that it is weakening american democracy And without that context, without that accountability, uh, I don't think it's appropriate. Joe, I
3: I don't think that we disagree. I, I agree with everything that you've said, but frankly, that's not what the letter is about. I mean, the letter was called for on November 5th, if I recall correctly, and started to be drafted on November 6th after it had become clear that Biden was going to win the election all of the stuff that you're referencing happened well after the initial round of the letter was drafted. And the letter itself makes reference to policies. I agree that what has happened after the election and what Trump and Trump administration or Trump allies have done poses a threat to our democracy. It's scary and it's shameful, uh, but it's not what the letter is about. But I don't think that we disagree. I think that all of that is bad i don't think the kennedy school should sort of perpetuate or uphold some of that real those really detrimental decisions but if we're talking about the letter then we should talk about the fact that it was written the second the democratic nominee won the election and was sort of framed as a way to punish the other party for you know, perceived policy failures for the last four years and and talked somewhat about some concerns that this sort of election disinformation campaign might happen, but focused also on certain policies the administration had engaged in. So I do think that a, a core component of this is policy. And, and if all the letter was calling for was that context would be provided around people that come to campus, and I think that's a different conversation. But we're calling for additional policies and constraints around people from this administration coming to campus. And I might even be for more transparency around all policies that dictate which speakers can come and which professors can come. I think that would benefit all students. But if those policies aren't implemented equally across anyone who comes, why? Why just Trump administration? And and that's sort of where I think my problem comes down to and, and my concerns come down to. There certainly are people from outside of the Trump administration that are concerning, or that are problematic, and and that we might want to have some more candid conversations about, or might be worried about coming to campus, or might want some of this context. And the fact is, this letter focuses on Trump administration policies, was drafted right after the election, and is sort of targeting just people in the Trump administration as broadly defined, not even targeting specific people who have committed some of the most egregious offenses. So I'm for more transparent policies around what speakers come to campus and around what faculty come to campus. I'm for students being able to hold the administration accountable for ensuring those policies are followed. I just think those policies need to be applied to everyone, and and that it sets a really dangerous precedent to apply them to members of a single political party, and to have rules that only apply to members of that political party and not to others.
1: Okay, something that I, I would like us to think about is, let's say that the letter it went through and, and the administration abided by the contents of the letter. What do you think the impact of that letter would be in terms of like, a Harvard Kennedy School education? If it does go through, how do Kennedy School students that come from all over the world benefit from from that um, being um, affected in practice?
4: So uh, first, and I believe really truly that on this topic, my voice is not as important as yours and it doesn't weight as much as Americans. Um, But i just talk from an international perspective I mean, we all come, be it Americans or international students, to Harvard and to the Kennedy School because of a shared passion or a, a wish to work on public governance and on uh, public policy. And we want all to achieve some goods in our homes and in the world. And the issues we're all tackling are very diverse and they're very different, right? So some people will be interested in climate change, some others will be interested in in racial injustice and then others in development and economy. And those are very complex, very difficult issues to tackle. And I believe these issues require a lot of discussions and a lot of debates between ourselves in class, but also outside of class. And the the threat of uh, democratic institutions is very important as well. And that's a big one. And that's also what I love about what happened with that letter is that, we debated about it, and some people were agreeing, some others were not agreeing, and so our conversations, I think, got very rich because of that. And I'm just talking about the outcome and what we believe to be true. And as a as a community, as students, uh, we can decide, oh, that's what we want to do. We we do not want to have certain Trump officials, but it's for me, it goes beyond that. It's it just how this specific issue really uh, pushed us to have that conversation. And I think that's very that's great. And that's what I looked for also coming to, to the Kennedy School. And I'm also curious to hear from both of you, you know, when we talk about government officials and Trump officials, do you think that all of them should not come to the school? Or do you think that it should just be certain of them? What, what is your point of view on this?
3: Maybe I'll I'll go first. Since I Seem to be the one that wants them to come. I don't, I don't know if Joe wants to answer that question because he probably say, no, they shouldn't. I think there's a. I, I think now I think you posed that beautifully. And first, before getting into it, I just want to say your opinion does matter equally. You're a student at the Kennedy School, and we're talking about the Kennedy School, so equally equally as important because it's your education and the people that you get to hear from that we're we're talking about. And and secondly. I think it makes sense to introduce some nuance here with that question. I think you phrased it beautifully. There's, you know, Are we talking about speakers? Or are we talking about faculty? Or are we talking about fellows? And that's where you start to get into some real differences. Frankly, I don't know or think anyone from the Trump administration is any high probability going to come to the Kennedy School to teach. One, I, I don't think that that would happen. I, I, don't think that Dean Elmendorf would hire, as faculty, members from the Trump administration. Two, as a member of the Republican Party who sort of understanding how they view Harvard as an institution, I don't know if any of them would want to come teach at Harvard. And and three, frankly, many of them aren't academics. They're practitioners. And so I think when we're thinking about people coming out of the Trump administration, and they're in terms of their engagement with Harvard, what we're really talking about is fellowships and speakerships. And I think a lot of people are concerned that they're going to come and they're going to have these faculty positions and be around forever and be responsible for teaching. I would like to say that, you know, I think that they should be allowed to engage in the process as anyone else would, if that was the case, if they wanted to get a faculty position, I think they should be allowed to apply. And I imagine that the faculty review committee and the administration probably wouldn't look favorably upon that, but I you know, I don't think that there should be anything prohibiting them from doing so. but I do think that we should be truthful about really what the actual consequences are of of this type of decision and it's really speakers and fellows. and that's why I feel, I think even more strongly that I, I really don't know where those limits are. like you know I, I think that we, have something to learn from everyone, even if we are learning just how much we really do disagree with everything that they did. And we really do think that they are as misguided as we thought they were. You know, I I do think that they're, if we're talking about speakers and fellows, is a place for people from the Trump administration. And I can't think of anyone that I would say should be excluded from, from that list, from the ability to just come to campus and to speak and to be questioned on the record, recorded publicly.
1: Before before we go to Joe, and and I know I'm I'm in the moderator role, but since we're talking about bridging the gap between Republicans and, and Democrats, and in general, like most of our countries have are undergoing a lot of polarization. So it's bridging the gap everywhere. If that's what we're talking about, I think from my perspective, the letter does bring up some important points about the importance of preserving democratic values and like the transparency of an election process and the fact that or at least I believe in, a, in the electoral process of the United States and, and of my own country. But what I'm, so the intentions I, I think are, are good. My concern is how would that letter play a role in bridging that gap that we want to gap?
2: First, I want to acknowledge, uh, and I, I know that I uh, intentionally overlooked policy because I, I think that, again, and I keep saying this, I think this issue in, in the purpose of this letter transcends policy because what's happened over the last 45 days is is largely uh, unrelated to any policy it's or any real legislative preference or, or policy preference. It's about uh, subversion of democracy. So that is my primary concern when it comes to this letter. But we can't ignore the fact that across the country and across the world, uh, people have been very seriously harmed by uh, the policies of this administration over the last four years. and I, I just wanted to to publicly acknowledge that because I do think it's important. I didn't write the letter, <laughs> so I, I can't really assess the, the specific details of it. My primary concern does happen to be with faculty. Uh, I think the minute that you bring someone to campus, a Trump administration to campus who has not engaged in, in this accountability that is being called for, and, and designate them faculty. Uh, I think you are legitimizing their experience and legitimizing their efforts over the last four years, uh, which I think have hurt a lot of people and hurt our democratic institutions. And I don't think it's right to have, let's say that it's an administration official that has been engaged in the direct effort to subvert, the democr- to subvert American democracy over the last 45 days. Now you have them as a distinguished professor on campus, you're legitimizing their viewpoints. What, what, are, they, what are they teaching students? That's, that's, I think, what this, this comes down to, is their education to the next generation of uh, leaders of, of the United States. And Khadija, I appreciate your viewpoint because this isn't just about leaders in the U.S., but also leaders all around the world who are going to be learning from these officials who have led an effort to undermine the most powerful democracy in the world. Uh, and that is just to me concerning and the effects of that are concerning as well. I can't assess the direct impacts of this letter. Um, I think it's hard to, uh, especially the fact that it's it's evolving, the fact that um, there is a lot of nuance to it as Lauren was presenting. I, I can't assess the direct impacts in terms of our, our polarization on campus around the country. I think there's a lot of work to do there. I don't think that work necessarily involves embracing Trump administration uh, officials and, and Trump allies. I think there's pathways for us to lower the heat, to reduce the degree of polarization and division that's going on in our country right now. Uh, that doesn't necessarily uh, require us to bring Trump administration officials to campus as faculty. Uh, so I, I I think we can talk about that. I think there's 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 a rich conversation there as well, but. Uh, I do think there is a distinction between potential effects of this letter and, and any conversation necessarily focused on polarization.
3: I would just, I agree. I think it's hard to assess the direct impact of the letter specifically because it is shifting. I'd also like to say that I don't think the Dean will implement anything that's asked in this letter because. You know, Joe listed a couple of the other Harvard University values and HKS values, also one of which is sort of access to diverse viewpoints and ability to hear different opinions. And so I think that because these values might conflict in some people's minds, the the dean and the administration will do the best they can to balance both, which is going to include bringing Trump administration officials to campus in a variety of capacities. So for that reason, I do think that this letter will not be implemented. Um, just from my, my analysis of it, but I do think that if it were to be, uh, it would be institutionalizing a sort of separation in the rules for one political party versus another. If we have explicit rules for fellows and speakers that come to campus from the Trump administration that do not apply to anyone else from any other administration, international or US focused, or anyone else from any other party or viewpoint, and they only apply to Trump administration officials, that's, you know, creating a system that continues to add additional barriers and, and constraints onto that type of viewpoint, which I can only imagine is not going to be good uh, for continued conversation or ending sort of polarization on campus.
2: And I, I am, I am all for bringing diverse viewpoints to campus as speakers uh, and as fellows and even as faculty, I think it's important to furthering our education. I think when I think about the division around the country right now, one of the first things that comes to mind is that it's predicated on the fact that our country has shifted away from truth uh, in a shared baseline of truth. And I think education is a key component of resolving that, which I think is, is one of the aims or should be one of the aims of a university like this It's creating that shared baseline of truth and working from there to pursue methods by which to reduce division and polarization. Uh, I am all for bringing in speakers that have diverse viewpoints. I don't think that just necessarily has to be restricted to different political ideologies. I think there are a range of speakers from, from diverse life experiences that we should be bringing to campus to get a range of opinions, a range uh, of ideas, to hear a range of ideologies and range of values. So I, I am all for that. I just think specifically with the the, the small group, because I, I do not think it encompasses a majority of the Republican Party. I do not think it encompasses a majority of this country. Um, those people right now in the administration administration allies and those people in Congress who are directly engaged in, in subverting democracy, who have been harming our country actively over the last several weeks uh, and over the last four years in different ways as well. Uh, I think those individuals should be held accountable for their actions if and when they come to campus. But Lauren, I I agree. I think we need more diverse thought on this campus. I think we can always be better when it comes to that. Uh, And I think the the more viewpoints that we bring, the better. And, And I'm hopeful that in the future we we head in that direction but again i just want to draw the distinction between the fact that we can bring different ideologies to campus and at the same time avoid legitimizing individuals who have been involved uh, in the subversion of democracy
3: i'd like to touch on the education component i think that's that's a core component or certainly a key to understanding different viewpoints i would just add Uh, and I would sort of put this as equal, is the ability to recognize shared humanity. Like it's impossible to have these conversations if you think someone who has a different policy position from you is immoral. And of course you can't engage with someone who you find to be immoral. Like, uh, why would you? You just have this core guttural reaction to everything that they say and it makes it impossible to be curious and to listen and to find shared agreement and common ground that you can build upon. And so when we start, which often happens at the Kennedy School, with this baseline assumption that anyone who possibly believes X or Y is immoral and therefore not worthy of being engaged with in conversation and not worthy of dialogue, it's easy for that immorality. to spiral to a whole host of other beliefs and all of a sudden no one can talk to anyone else. And I, I... I do not mean to minimize certain positions that people can take that are actively harmful. I do not mean to say that people need to put themselves in harmful conversations to convince others. I do not mean to say that that work belongs to those people that are being actively harmed. What I mean to say is that obviously what we're doing is not working and othering people who have different beliefs And calling them immoral and not recognizing any shared humanity or any shared morality is not working. And so those who can engage in those conversations, those who feel safe in engaging with people with certain sets of viewpoints, I think should do so. And I I think that we should, as much as possible, stray away from calling people with different viewpoints immoral, except for when Absolutely, necessary for self protection. Um, otherwise, we see what we're seeing now, which is sort of everything that anyone says on the other side of the aisle can be spun as uneducated or unethical or immoral and then it's impossible to engage on anything on any of the facts, and it's impossible to find any common ground.
2: And I agree with engagement. I, my concern I, I was on a, I, I was on a panel with the former governor of Michigan. Um, who had had been the governor of the state during the uh, Flint water crisis. And I was shocked because he was not getting a single question about that issue. Uh, and I brought it up. I was like, no, let, let's talk about this because I, I don't think it is fair when we are having a conversation where we're, we're having, and I, I agree, Lauren, I think we should be having and we should be having conversations um, with folks from different viewpoints. I think we should be engaging those, we disagree with i think that's the only way that we'll we'll heal the divisions of our country i don't think that necessarily should should involve ignoring our disagreements i think we should talk about them and i think we should especially when it's when it's political official who uh, has at least in my opinion been harmful to anyone uh, that who has ha- who has pushed forward policies or advanced an agenda that has actively harmed people then I think we should have that conversation and focus on those issues and discuss those issues. Because that I think is where accountability comes in. If we just brush over them and say, well, let's ignore all these other issues that we disagree on. Um, in the case of, of the former governor of Michigan, let's just ignore the Flint water crisis. First, I don't I don't really see the purpose of that. And second, I think we are um, letting people get away with policies that have actively harmed other people. And, and I don't think that is fair to anyone. So, I agree that we should continue that engagement. I think that engagement should come with a recognition that there are going to be tough conversations that need to be had, uh, there are going to be tough questions, and those are those are allowed, they're acceptable, because that's, I think, not only how we will all grow, but holding officials accountable, holding our government accountable, I think, is one of the greatest responsibilities uh, that we have, and I just I don't want to see a situation where um, the expectation is that we all have a kumbaya moment. I don't think you can really have unity in this country. I don't think you can ease the divisions without there being true justice and in, in a pursuit for equity. Until there is no justice and equity, I don't think you will have true unity in this country. So let's not just work for the unity and ignore the justice and the equity. Let, let's, let's approach all three at the same time and address these issues and address these officials accordingly.
3: To be clear, we're not in disagreement. I'm not calling for civility. And I will quote Arthur Brooks, who is a professor at the Kennedy School, who I think has done a lot of interesting work on this from the Republican side of things. He says in his book and some talks, he says, if I told you that my wife and I were civil, you would tell us to go get partners counseling. You would tell us to go to couples therapy. I, I'm not saying that we need civility. I'm saying that we need to recognize humanity in those conversations. I think everything that you're talking about is crucial. But if you're having those conversations with in the back of your mind thinking that the other person is immoral or unworthy of anything, of your humanity, then you can't actually have the tough conversations in a way that heals. You only have those conversations in a way that divides. So I think we're agreed. I think you said it beautifully. And and I, just I, think, to no, and
2: I agree with that. I kind of, I think recognizing that shared humanity is essential. I don't think we're going to get anywhere until we start not only our shared humanity, but, and, and I, this is a separate issue, but I think there is, there is a, a crisis of belonging in this country that I think is, is now being addressed more and more. I don't think people feel like they belong to a, a greater society anymore to something that is, that is larger than themselves. And I think, a lot of people are having a really hard time identifying with their fellow Americans. I think we need to get back to a place where we can recognize not only our shared humanity, but our shared status as countrymen and women, people that, at the end of the day, are in this all together and are affected by our actions and by the consequences of said actions. You, you, you see what I'm saying right?' It's, it's not it's about more than shared humanity. We, we live in the same country. We we have intertwined futures, and I think we are we are forgetting that, and we need to start remembering that again if if we want to uh, see a prosperous future.
1: Uh, I want to give a pass to to Khadija, uh, as well to <laughs> what what you guys have been talking about, but. Something really uh, quick that I wanted to add, Khadija and I were in a negotiations class this semester, and one of the things that we studied was that usually people have this idea that people on the other side are more extreme than they are, and then they realize that, no, we actually have a lot more things in common than we thought. So I think this is very important to remember when thinking about bridging the gap, because from, from an outside perspective, it seems that you actually agree on more fundamental things that that you probably initially came thinking about and... Um, give- yeah, I, I totally agree with you,
4: Andrea. And that's also one of the points that I wanted to make is that I was thinking a lot of our negotiation classes and how first you don't get to have so many spaces today where you can talk with someone who has a different point of view. That's very rare. And it's even more rare uh, in the age of social media. And it's a, it's a issue that we all studied in class it's very hard to make a bridge on these spaces, which are today the spaces of democratic expression. So I think school and education at large are very, very great venues to talk about different issues between ourselves. I think it's terrific and I'm super happy we're doing it right now. And then my second point was about also, you know, how do we learn leadership? And we could learn leadership by also looking at um, a set of, examples that are not as great as we dub them to be. Uh, My point is that usually, you know, we hear about leadership and how an example leadership should be this and this and this, but there are perhaps some learnings from difficult situations that were not necessarily handled the right way. And how do you fix that? So, you know, the importance of feedback, the importance of negative feedback is also very important. And for example, I was thinking of macroeconomic policy. I'm super interested in hearing what officials from the current government did when coronavirus hit the country, what stimulus did they put in place, all that. And I think that's very interesting because it's a big chunk of uh, past and present history of the United States, which is you know, uh, very important in the world as an economy. And I would want to hear someone from Treasury has done and what they should have had done, what worked, what didn't work. So it really comes down also to what subjects we're talking about and also what are the limits. And that's really one point that I truly agree with you, Joe, is that there are real things that happen that are affecting real people and we should not necessarily close an eye on this. We should make sure that they are also respected in that sense.
1: Yeah, so I think we're about at the time boundary, but thank you all for for being here. It was less adrenaline rush than usually when people from from different parties talk, but that was our intent. We really wanted to give space for a conversation and for for you guys to have as much time as you needed to express your views. Hopefully you found this helpful. And as a closing, if the three of you just want to say some closing remarks. Um, or what you take away from this conversation or, or anything pertaining to bridging the gap?
3: Maybe I'll I'll go first, but I don't really have, it's a lot of pressure on the spot. I don't really have anything insightful or, you know, formational to say other than I I'm a second year student at the Kennedy School and for the most part have been pretty, pleasantly surprised by my relationships and conversations with those who I disagree with politically. There certainly have been several instances where I have gotten exactly what I expected to get, where people have said, in my opinion, just immature, uninformed things or made gross generalizations that aren't productive and can be harmful to having those types of conversations. But for the most part, it has been for me, at least, a place to have really good and honest and tough conversations in a productive and healthy way with people I I care a lot about. So I don't want us to lose sight of the fact that we actually do have something, I think, quite special and quite important that maybe isn't as easily replicated outside of the Kennedy School. And I don't want us to sort of say or extrapolate what's happening in American politics broadly in the national stage to what's happening within the Kennedy School or even what's happening within our communities. You know, at a much more local and grassroots level, I think people are much more able to engage and talk and to see each other. So that makes me hopeful. And conversations like this always make me more hopeful too.
2: Uh, I agree with with what Lauren was saying and also I find hope in conversations like this. I think we need to realize that there are serious obstacles to these conversations that present themselves all across the country. I think the degree of polarization that we've seen nationwide is not a coincidence. It's not an accident. I think there are factors that are, that are contributing to it. I think it is easier at this point for you to just free to engage with someone that you know you already agree with uh, than it is to go talk to your neighbor who you might have a disagreement with. That is just the nature of of the world we live in right now. A lot of it, I think, has to do with technology. And I think that there are forces that are continuing to divide us further. And I think what we need to do is do more of this and and, and try to put an end to the forces that are dividing us and, and look for ways to build community, to restore a sense of belonging, to be able to recognize each other's shared humanity and I think that'll take a lot of work, and it'll take a lot of effort, and it's it's not the easy thing to do. That's, I think, what we need to remember. It is easier for us to just talk to people that we agree with. What is easier um, is just ignoring and avoiding, and uh, I think we need to have more of these conversations, and these conversations can be difficult, but we need to have them. The future of this country, the future of, of our world really depends on our ability to, to come together and have these more difficult conversations.
4: Um, I totally agree with what Joe and Lauren has, have said. And I'll just add one thing is that when you talk with people who more or less think the same as you do or have the same political uh, beliefs that you do, then you're not able to get their point of view inside any of your propositions. You're just hearing it's like an echo chamber. And so you're hearing what you want to hear and it's great for our ego and it's great <laughs> for who we are as a as people and for making bonds and friends. But I do believe that the polarity of opinion is key in bringing nuances that will make us not only more human, but also more efficient. I truly believe that by bringing more diverse views, we'll be also able to bring policies that are more fit to this world today, which is very complex, as you know. So um, thank you so much for uh, sharing all your opinions today. I really learned uh, a lot from them and it enriched re- me.
1: Yeah, with that, um, thank you all for being a part of the first episode of this academic year. It's the first time that we're doing it through Zoom and through like different ways than, than when we used to do it last year. Um, so thank you for being a part of this experiment <laughs> in a way and for sharing your views um, with us and with all the the listeners. Thanks, Lauren.
4: Uh, Thanks, Joe. And thanks, Andrea. (laughs)